Well, good morning, ladies, and it's uh, great to be here uh, with you this morning and be able to share a bit with you about the study of the book of Acts. Um, exciting to see how many people have come out, and I know so many um, that are streaming as well. And I'm excited especially that you're going to study the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a fantastic book to study. It's, of course, any book you study, I'm not going to say, well, that's a lousy book, but <laughs> I think the book of Acts in particular um, is, is such a wonderful book, um, so much going on. It's an exciting book. It's a book of earthquakes and snake bites and shipwrecks and people falling out of windows. Um, it's also amazing just to see the birth of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit um, through the apostles and ordinary people who turn the world upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a super exciting book for all of those reasons. To me personally, it's a book that God used in my life as we were ministering here at Grace to lead us towards going to the mission field. And as I and back now at Grace Community Church and helping train new missionaries to go out, uh, the book of Acts has become even more special to me as we see the pattern of Peter and Paul and the other apostles and all that they have done. So I'm very excited for you guys as you study the book of Acts this year. Now the book of Acts, it's a bit different than the other books that you've studied recently in the epistles. The epistles are fantastic, of course, and they're Wonderful because so easily we can apply directly as we, as we read them. We see a command, do not lie to one another. Boy, how do I apply that one? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Pretty straightforward how we put into practice uh, the, the epistles and what they say. But Acts is different because it's a narrative, as uh, Lauren already mentioned. So a narrative, we need to be a bit more careful in how we study uh, narrative, we must do the work of interpretation before we do the work of application. We can't jump directly to application. But of course, at the end of the day, that is why we study the Bible, isn't it? We're not studying the Bible to try and just know more. It's not just an academic exercise. It's not like another history book where we can know more facts about what has happened. We study God's word because we want it to change our lives, and God uses it to change our lives. But when we're studying narrative, we need to be extra cautious that we're doing that step of interpretation before we do application. James 1.22 reminds us of this. And let me see here. James 1.22 reminds us, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's a warning for us. We need to be careful not just to be hearers of the word or, or readers or studiers of the word, but we must look at how we apply this truth in our lives so that it changes us. So we must first find timeless principles in the text. So how do we do this? How do we interpret and apply a narrative portion of scripture as opposed to an epistle? So we're gonna look at some key principles of how to apply narrative portions. But before I get to these key principles, I want to give you three pitfalls or some mistakes that are made when interpreting narrative portions of Scripture. And all of these pitfalls 
I've seen them. I've been in churches when we were overseas in China. Uh, we definitely saw these applied. And as you think through these principles, you can probably remember hearing some of these yourselves and think through, well, I need to be careful then not to fall into these same mistakes or pitfalls. And the first one is this, interpreting narratives allegorically. So that's one mistake we do not want to make. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to interpret allegorically? To interpret allegorically means to search for a hidden meaning in the text that underlies the actual words. Those who interpret allegorically will say, yes, that's what the text says, but I'm looking for something deeper than what the text says. As one writer put it, they believe the literal meaning is a sort of code which needs to be deciphered to determine the more significant and hidden meaning. In this approach, the literal is superficial and the allegorical is the true meaning. And so that is the allegorical approach, and we need to avoid that. Now, what are some examples that help you understand that? Well, one example is in the book of Genesis. We uh, are probably familiar with the account of Jacob and Jacob wanting uh, to marry Rachel, and first marry Leah and then Rachel. Well, one church uh, pastor, this was uh, Justin Martyr back in AD 100, many years ago, he said, well, Jacob really represents Jesus. And Leah is the Jews and Rachel is the church. And so Jesus loves the Jews and loves the church. That's what the story of Jacob is all about. Well, certainly it's true that Christ loves the Jews and loves the church, but that is not what that narrative was about. Uh, would the earliest readers have thought, oh yes, this is what, what is happening here. Or when Moses penned it, was he thinking, yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's all about the church? Certainly not. So that's one way to do allegorical. Another one, which I think is even more humorous, is uh, one man who said the Noah's Ark is really the body of Christ. And we need to see that as the Ark saved Noah, so Christ saves us. And the dimensions of the Ark correspond roughly to Christ's physical body's dimensions. And that the door in the side represents the wound in the side. And you can really, you can see, you can go quite a lot of different ways if you start going allegorical and try to find meaning in this way. Now, we can know that this is the wrong way to interpret just by looking at it, the New Testament. And how does the New Testament handle the Old Testament? How does it handle the narratives of the Old Testament? An objective reading of, of this scripture shows that the New Testament writers saw it as actual events. When the Old Testament said Christ would be born in Bethlehem, what hidden meaning was there in that? Uh, none. It was Christ was actually born in Bethlehem. Or that he would ride in on a donkey. Well, it didn't mean anything else other than he would ride in on a donkey. Um, and that he would be truly punished for our sins when it says that, that's what happened. So all these things happened as literally predicted. And that's how we're to understand the narrative. We're not to take it allegorically, but we're to interpret them um, in the way that they're written, a generally literal interpretation. I say generally literal because certainly there are figures of speech. And we're not going to throw out figures of speech such as Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, or I am the door. Yes, there are times there are figures of speech that are used, 
But that is not to say that we look for allegory or hidden meanings in the text. Now, what happens if we do that? What happens if we interpret allegorically? Well, a couple problems that come up. Number one, it's completely subjective and arbitrary. So one person says, this is the interpretation that's hidden here. Another person says, well, I think this is the hidden interpretation. Anyone gets to decide then what the meaning of the text is. Take, for example, David and Goliath. And the account of David and Goliath, that's a classic one that so many preachers interpret allegorically. Uh, One, I just did a quick search on the internet and what is the meaning of David and Goliath account? One person said, well, Goliath is a difficulty in our lives. We are like David. Goliath is a difficulty in our lives. Perhaps it's doubt. Perhaps your Goliath is marriage problems. So we need to take the five stones that God has provided And this preacher said the five stones are courage, confidence, preparation, faith, and victory. And you take these five stones to slay the Goliath in your life. That's a fascinating interpretation. But another sermon I saw online said, yes, Goliath is a problem in your life, but the five stones are the five parts of you. They're your body, soul, mind, spirit, And the fifth stone is the Holy Spirit, and that's the only stone you really need. Okay, well, which of these guys is right then, if it's completely up to them? Of course, another guy said, no, you are not David, and Goliath isn't your problems. Jesus is David, and Goliath represents sin, and Jesus slaying sin. Well, we know that Jesus, yes, he defeated sin on the cross. But is that what the story of David and Goliath is all about? Is that what God intended for us to understand? And certainly, did the original readers of the account see it as Jesus defeating sin? Certainly not. So we need to to be more literal. We can't go allegorical in our interpretation. We run into all of those problems. The second problem that occurs when we do this is that it undermines the authority of God's word. When we determine the meaning, find that hidden meaning, then we're the ones that's standing in authority and saying, I will say what God's word says. I'm determining it. But we need to stand under the authority of God's word. It is the one that's determining our lives and what is right and what is wrong. So we need to be careful. This is one pitfall then, to interpret allegorically. We need to take this a more general, literal approach in interpreting the second pitfall we can, we can get into is interpreting narrative details in isolation. When we read a, a narrative, say an account of something that happens, don't look for every single object in that account to be important. But you look at how each individual detail points towards the main point. So what is the main point that the author is making? Not trying to interpret details in isolation. Uh, just using the example I mentioned, the five rocks. Are we to look at each? Why five rocks? Is five important? What does that mean? No, how does it fit the larger picture of the story? What is the reason that is mentioned? In the book of Acts, uh, there's obviously it's, it's full of narrative and sermons by the apostles. But we think of the account of Paul escaping Damascus. And he was taken through the wall to escape and lowered in a basket. As you study that passage, are you to think, oh, a basket? 
What is God teaching us about baskets? Is it referring to Jesus distributing the bread and the fish in baskets? Or are baskets representing how we interweave our lives together to save people? You know, you can go anywhere if you start going that direction. Uh, The point is he escaped and had to escape um, because people hated the gospel and were persecuting him. So be careful in interpreting details in isolation. A big mistake that can be made. The third one I want to mention is interpreting narratives applicationally. And as we interpret, our goal is application, right? We do want to get towards application. But some are so eager to apply God's word that they skip the step of interpretation. We must first find the theological point or the timeless principle in the text before we immediately try to apply it to our lives. You can see this in the Old Testament. People do this and say, well, look, Adam and Eve, they ate vegetables only. So we need to only eat vegetables. Or the Daniel diet, you'll hear that mentioned. Well, is that what the text is trying to teach us here? Are we supposedly supposed to directly apply the same diet that he used? Um, and this, this is a, a problem. We need to be careful to first say, what is the point the, of the text instead of immediately trying to apply it? What is the theological purpose? And the book of Acts definitely is theological history. So it's not just history, but it is theological history. It's meant to teach us something. So we need to ask the question, what are we to learn from this before we ask the question, how are we to apply this? So you first want to say, what am I supposed to learn from this? What is the point before how do I apply this? So for example, Paul went to the temple near the end of the book of Acts to do purification ceremonies, Acts 21. Do we immediately apply that and say, okay, I need to do some kind of purification ceremony? Well, no. Why did Paul do that? What is the point that the author is trying to make there before we run out and try and figure out what is a modern-day purification ceremony for us? So I want to emphasize to you to think through this and think through the passage before the application, but don't stop just understanding the text. Move all the way to application, but take that important interpretation step first. So how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are finding that theological point? Or what are principles to help lead us to that theological point? Well, that is what I want to talk to you with the rest of our time today, is looking at those principles in interpreting narrative. So the first one is this. Seek out the timeless truth the author is communicating. You're looking for what they call authorial intent. What is the author intending to communicate here? So you may have heard, it's common to hear this in a Bible study or in a group meeting, what does this passage mean to you? And I think that is done with the best of intent. But before we ask, what does it mean to you? We need to ask, what did the passage mean to the original readers? And perhaps even more important, what did the original author intend to communicate? What is the author saying here instead of what does it mean to me? So if we are looking at back, okay, what did the author intend to communicate? How did the original readers understand this? We need to look at context. Context is absolutely critical in biblical interpretation. 
Context includes historical context. It includes grammatical context, cultural context, literary context. All these things must be taken into account. They may understand something different back then than the author knew that the original readers would understand something that because, say, it was written in Greek, than we understand today because of that word. So we need to do extra work. Now, thankfully, we have excellent Bible translations that we can use that help us in that. But we need to be careful to see exactly what is this text saying. So that's the first step is is look at what the author is communicating. Don't look for hidden meaning or think in some way that we can determine the meaning of the text. But what is the author meaning in this? The second principle in interpreting narrative is to understand the God-centered focus of every narrative. They're not just stories about people. It's not, the book of Acts is not the stories of Peter and Paul and their buddies. Um, First and foremost, the book of Acts is about what the Lord is doing. So we need to see what God is doing in people, through people, in these accounts. In every narrative, we need to remember this. God is the hero of the story. God is always the hero. We sometimes forget that, especially, I think, um, we did a lot when we were overseas and helping the Sunday school teachers teach the kids. It's easy to make the different characters as heroes. Moses is a hero. Daniel is a hero. Um, All these different people are heroes. Well, ultimately, God is the hero of every story. And yes, he uses people to accomplish his purposes, but they are not ultimately the hero, God is. And so we need to be careful that we remember that. So the interpreter must be prepared to recognize God as the primary focus of narratives. And I like this quote from Duval and Hayes. This is a, called a book called Grasping God's Word. And he says this, throughout most of biblical narrative, God is a central character. He's not aloof, speaking only in shadows through the narrator. He's a major player in the story. If we miss God in the story, then we have missed the story. So what is God doing in the story? So we look at the book of Acts. Who is the hero of the book of Acts? God, excellent. So you're already getting this. You're already putting this into practice. Now, primarily in the book of Acts, it's God in the person of the Holy Spirit. So what is the person of the Holy Spirit doing throughout the book of Acts? Again, we we can think of the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. But really, a better, fuller name of the book of Acts is the continuing acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit by the apostles and other Christian leaders. It's really what is the Spirit sent from Jesus Christ doing in the book of Acts. And so as you study, take special note of what the Holy Spirit is doing in each passage. What is God doing in the story and not just the individuals? The third important principle as you study this year in the book of Acts, is to recognize the difference between description and prescription. So description is what happened. Prescription is what we ought to do. So this is kind of the other side of that allegorical approach or the applicational approach I mentioned earlier. The common temptation is to assume the biblical account is setting forth how the people of God ought to live. 
But really, narratives tell us what happened in the account, not necessarily what should have happened then or what we should do today. Many times, Scripture records how the people of God even acted wickedly. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us these things were written about the wicked behavior so that you might not do them. So as we look at what happened, we need to then determine, is that still applicable today, or what is the timeless truth that we can apply today? So there's a difference between description and prescription. And I think a good way to illustrate this, and it's something I have heard a preacher do before. I used to be on high school staff for many years, and once heard a preacher say that um, we need, and you're looking for a spouse one day, you know, as a young man and you're hoping to get married one day, look at this story of Adam and Eve and look at that account. How did Adam find a wife? He went to sleep and God brought a wife to them. So you need to, in a spiritual sense, go to sleep in the Lord. And when God, in his perfect timing, he'll bring along a woman next to you um, and she will appear to be your wife. Uh, it's interesting uh, that he would uh, use that narrative to give me instruction because there's a lot of other narratives he could have used. Um, in Hosea, perhaps you're familiar with the account of Hosea and the Lord wanted him to marry a prostitute. Or in Genesis 29, we talked about Jacob worked seven years to marry Leah and seven more years. Well, is that the advice I should be giving young men and looking for a wife? Worked 14 years for her father? Or we look at Samson. Samson told his parents, go get me a wife. Well, that's, that's one way. I haven't heard a preacher uh, say that before. Tell the students to have their parents get them a wife. But as ladies here, perhaps you should take the example of Ruth. Um, you know, she, she wanted to marry Boaz. And so she, when he was asleep, uncovered his feet so he would wake up and saw her laying by his feet. Is that, is that for us to apply? Take that narrative? No, I'm not going to give my daughter that advice. I guarantee you to, uh, to find a husband. And certainly we can see um, da- David who had a man killed to take the woman as a wife. Or Solomon, who had a thousand wives. Narratives don't always tell us what we should do. It tell us what happened. And we need to look at what happened and then say, what is God teaching us through this? So what is the point of the passage? So be careful to recognize the difference between description and prescription, what we're to do. The next principle is look for repetition. Look for repetition of key words, phrases, and concepts. And that's an indication of what is important and what the passage is trying to teach us. If the narrator is emphasizing something in the telling of a story, that's a significant clue to his overall theological purpose. You'll see this in the book of Acts. You'll see certain things repeated throughout the book of Acts. Look at the different sermons that are given. When Peter preaches these times, or Paul gives sermons, what are some elements that always seem to be included in these sermons? And that's a good indication for you of, okay, this is something that the author is emphasizing so that we can find what his theological point really is. This has something to do with what he's communicating to us. 
an example for this we see in chapter 1. I'm sure you've already started reading the book of Acts, and we see in chapter 1 that with the death of Judas, they decided we need to find another person to fill that role. So what did they do? They cast lots in determining between two people who that would be. Well, is that what we should do? Should we automatically then, all right, if we're looking for a new leader at Grace Community Church, let's cast lots to find that person. Well, no, you don't see casting lots used throughout the book of Acts. That's not something that's repeated. In fact, as we're looking for, okay, how does God, God guide our decision-making, and especially the choosing of leaders, what do we see throughout Acts? Well, we see God using a number of things in guiding people in the book of Acts. Sometimes God used angels to guide people. Sometimes he uses Holy Spirit. Sometimes visions. Sometimes scripture. Sometimes just through prayer and sometimes other believers. So what we see repeated is that God is guiding his people. We don't see repeated casting of lots. And so we shouldn't take, put too much weight on something like that. But look at God always directs his people on what to do. And that is where we start looking then for the timeless principle instead of just what happened. Another key principle is to consider the broader historical and theological context. Now, this is certainly true in all genres of Scripture, but especially in narrative. Now, we know in the Old Testament, as you study the Old Testament, uh, we are very aware and cognizant that, yes, okay, this was before the time of Christ. Israel was under the Mosaic Law. And so we are very careful uh, to recognize that historical theological context. But many times when we come to the book of Acts, we think, okay, this is the church age, and so this is just like us. So therefore, anything in the book of Acts, we can directly apply to our lives. And while it's true that there is more similarity in the book of Acts than the Old Testament, as far as their historical theological context, there are differences as well. Consider these very significant differences between the time of the book of Acts, the early church, And us today, there were still many eyewitnesses of Jesus when he was in the flesh. During that time, the message of Jesus Christ had not spread to many countries. It was just in the country of Israel at that time. Beginning of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. Certainly that's very different from us today. In the book of Acts, there were still apostles. There were still the 11 minus Judas still the apostles that were on earth that Jesus had personally discipled. We don't have them today. During the time of the book of Acts, the scripture was still being written. We have the scripture completed now. So that's a, that's a big difference. And finally, the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God, into the church without needing to become Jews. Well, that was a radical concept as well. So this was a very unique time in history, and in fact, a time of transition. The early church was a time of transition for the church, and so we can't expect it to be identical to what we are seeing today. And so let me give you a couple examples uh, of those differences I mentioned. One, it was the time of the apostles. So since it was the time of the apostles, we should not expect to be able to do all that the apostles did. The apostles who wrote scripture oftentimes and did signs and wonders, 
we can't expect that us today are going to do the same thing that the apostles did. This was a special time because it was the time of the apostles. Secondly, it was the unfolding revelation of the work of the Spirit. So we see in the book of Acts the Holy Spirit coming upon people at multiple times. We see in the Acts chapter 2 during the Pentecost. And we see the Holy Spirit coming down as uh, tongues of flames of fire on the Jews. The Jews there who were gathered together received the Holy Spirit. Later in Acts 8, we see the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritans. And then later in Acts 10, we see the Holy Spirit come upon Gentile Christians. And so some will look at Acts 8 or Acts 10 and say, oh, look, there's a two-step process here. There's a conversion and there's a second happening of the baptizing of the Holy Spirit that we should expect today. Well, that's not true. This was a special time in history. Later in the New Testament, in the epistles, we read that every believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's not a two-stage process. The book of Acts, again, is a church in transition. The unfolding work of the Holy Spirit is happening in the book of Acts. And so we see things that are unique in the book of Acts that we are not to expect today. In fact, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon people very much mirrors Acts 1.8, where Christ said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, we see the Holy Spirit coming to the Jews first. And then we see it to Samaritans. And then we see it again to Gentiles. And so it very much follows that pattern. And so that's important as we study to, to recognize this historical theological context here, lest we mistakenly take what happened in Acts 8 or Acts 10 and say, well, this is how it will look for us today. The sixth point I want you to remember, as you interpret narrative, especially the book of Acts, remember the overall purpose of the book. Every passage, every chapter, the author has a point that fits into his larger point of the whole book. The parts fit into the whole. And so what is the purpose of the book of Acts? And we need to really consider that as we study chapter one. Well, what do all the chapters say? What does the whole book say as we study each chapter? And to consider the purpose, we should consider the beginning of Acts, the middle of Acts, and the end of Acts. By that, I mean the beginning. We look at the first two verses of the book of Acts. And what does it tell us there? Luke writes this, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, here we see in Acts 1, 1 and 2, Luke is saying, this is, you remember the first account I did. Well, the first account is the Gospel of Luke, Correct. And the first account, he's saying all that Jesus did as he lived. So in the beginning, uh, Luke wants his reader to know, he intends Theophilus to read this, but certainly others as well, that I wrote to you all about the life of Christ in a very exact manner, very precise, historical, accurate. I'm doing the same thing now about the early church. And so what we're going to see here is Luke as a historian saying, I'm going to let you know exactly what happened with this early church. 
So that's what he says in the beginning. But in the middle, as we read the book of Acts, we recognize Luke doesn't give us every detail of what happened. We learn very little of many of the apostles and the kind of ministry that they did. He focuses just primarily on Peter and Paul and a few others. And why does he do that? Because he's not merely writing as a historian. He's writing as a theologian as well. And so his purpose is to focus on specific events and specific people so that we can see the supernatural origin of the church and how the Holy Spirit expanded it to start reaching the world. So we need to consider that each event that's included in the book of Acts is there for a reason. And what is, why did Luke include that portion, that piece of history, that sermon in the book of Acts? So always a good question to be asking yourself. Finally, we need to look at the end of the book to determine its purpose. In the last two verses of the book, it talks about Paul under house arrest in Rome. It says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And in a sense, the book of Acts feels incomplete. Uh, We read all about Paul and what happened, but then we leave him in house arrest and it's not finished. And yet, I believe this is intentional by Luke. He did this on purpose. And the point he's trying to make here that the story of the church is not finished. The story of the church continues on. It continues on to us today. And we are continue to spread the gospel. And so that is one of the purposes I believe Luke is giving in the book of Acts. And we look at even the last word, the very last word of the book is the word unhindered. He said, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And isn't that an amazing irony that Paul uses here? He's under house arrest. He is physically hindered, but the gospel's not hindered. The gospel is going to go out and that won't be hindered even if Paul is under house arrest. The kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ goes on unhindered. And that, again, is one of the things I believe that Luke is reminding us, that the truth goes out unhindered. So those are some principles I want you to remember. I'll read through them again real quickly. Seek the timeless truth the author is communicating. What is his main point? Secondly, understand the God-centered focus. And in particular, in the book of Acts, what's the Holy Spirit doing through the people? Third, recognize the difference between description and prescription. Don't apply the passage without first interpreting it. Fourth, look for repetition. Look for repetition. Look for repetition. Uh, Fifth, consider the broader historical and theological context recognizing this is a transitional time of the church. That doesn't mean then we just set it aside as descriptive, but we look at the description, find the theological point, and apply it. And then, of course, remember the overall purpose of the book. I'm excited, again, for you guys in studying the book of Acts. I think it's going to be a fantastic study for you all. And I just encourage you, 
work hard as you study. What does the text mean? What is it trying to tell us theologically? And then don't stop there. And then how am I supposed to live? How should I apply that timeless theological truth in my life to the glory of God so that I can see the gospel, to see the truth about Jesus Christ, to go out unhindered throughout the world? So let me pray for us, and then I'll hand it back to Lauren. Father, we are so thankful for your word, for the truth in your word. There is not a, a word, not a letter, Lord, that is included in your word that is without purpose. Everything is for us so we can understand and know you first and foremost, and then understand how you would have us live. Father, humble us before your word. We do not want to sit in judgment of it, but it stands in judgment on us. Lord, I pray that uh, each person here, myself included, will always do the hard work of studying your word carefully and applying it diligently. Lord, we want to see Christ glorified until the day he returns. And we pray that day would come quickly and that we would see Jesus again and be free from this world of sin and our own sinly, uh, sinful flesh, God. We long for that day to see you glorified. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.